Hey there, and welcome back to Dare to Be Great, the podcast for Earth Protected Communities Youth Voices. This is a space for discussion about collective community action. It's time that we come together to imagine sustainable futures into being. I'm Sky Farin, and it's a joy to be with you as we navigate conversations with academics, activists, and artists alike, the regular people who dare to be great when it comes to the planet. I'm honoured to have Talia Wooden join us today. She is an activist, photojournalist, and filmmaker. At 21 years old, Talia has, among other things, been an XR youth organiser, a photojournalist, and a treetop activist. For months, she's been living at protest sites with the aim of stopping the construction of a train line called High Speed 2, aka HS2, which is set to irreparably damage hundreds of ancient protected woodlands and areas of specific scientific interest across the UK, costing the taxpayer an ever-increasing receipt in the billions, while public outcry against the project only grows. Talia has been taking a stand by living, sleeping and working at anti-HS2 protection camps, raising awareness through media and putting her body on the line to protect the UK's ecosystems. After I spent time at the protection camps, I saw for myself the destruction that was and continues to take place, but also the importance of community that exists in the protest sites and the power of direct action. Working against systems of oppression, Talia's environmental activism intersects with pressing social and humanitarian work taking action against issues as wide-ranging as air pollution to mental health and activism. So Talia, welcome. Uh, You're in London at the moment, so how is it being out of the forest and back within four walls? Um, It's all right, it's all right. I've been kind of between here and the woods for the past year or so, so it kind of feels like one of many homes, but it's okay. Yeah. So when you say you've been in the woods, yeah. a lot of people will be wondering what you mean by that. You know, how can you live in the woods? What is HS2 and what have you been protesting against? So HS2 stands for High Speed 2 um, and it's a infrastructure project, a high speed rail infrastructure project that the government is currently um, working on. Um, it's a huge, huge infrastructure project. It's hugely expensive, also hugely destructive and very controversial. Um, It was proposed about 11 years ago, initially by the Labour government. Um, And in that time, it has has grown in cost and in um, the amount of time it's going to take to build it and just kind of the size of the construction. Um, And we, so there's a campaign that started about uh, 10 or so years ago that was very much um, from within communities that were going to have their homes and their land and their communities affected by this construction project. Um, And then in the last three years, uh, certain protest groups created camps occupying the land that was going to be destroyed, especially the woodlands. There's a lot of ancient woodlands that are being destroyed by this project. And so about three years ago, um, the first site at Harville Road was set up to physically resist the project. And since then, especially in the past year, it's just gotten really huge, the campaign. I mean, I'm also the construction and the destruction, but the campaign has just really blown up. And in the past year, we've had about 10 to 15 different sites um, running at different points and currently have a few still going, uh, mainly between London and Birmingham, which is phase one of the route, um, but also now 
going up past Birmingham um, for where phase two is going to be. So, yeah, I mean, last so about this time last year, um, I first went out to one of the sites and have kind of been on the campaign pretty much ever since. That That's really an intense form of activism that I think a lot of people haven't engaged in so people probably interested in this this frontline form of activism how did you get into activism and then more specifically direct action so I was brought up um, um, within activist circles both my parents very involved in green party politics and environmental activism from before I was born and so I was very much brought up around activism around protest it was a big part of our family life and of my childhood. So a lot of these ideas and a lot of this work was introduced to me at quite a young age. Um, and I was very aware growing up of protest movements and especially direct action in the 80s and 90s, like around the road protests, around Newry Bypass, Greenham Common, all of these really iconic protests throughout history um, that had a really significant like physical resistance within them um and that alongside photography were very much big parts of my childhood and things that I was introduced to and I became passionate about from a very young age um and then in 2018 you know moved to London uh to start university and it was around the same time the Extinction Rebellion had just started and so I got involved quite near the beginning and got involved through photography was doing a lot of photography for the movement and through that came across the HS2 campaign kind of just about a year and a half ago um and again was doing some photography and some media things for them at that point I made the decision to drop out of university for various reasons but partly to pursue activism full-time um and yeah so I kind of I came across the HS2 campaign and started learning more about it um, and then made the decision to go out there because I knew a few people that had joined the campaign before lockdown and spent the first lockdown in the woods. And then when the first lockdown ended, I made the decision to go out there. And that's basically what I've been doing ever since. <laughs> yeah. So this comes with a lot of resistance from whether it's HS2 Limited themselves or the government. And how do you work around that? Mm. So, yeah, I mean, part of what we're resisting when it comes to HS2 is the injustice of it and the undemocratic nature of it. It's a hugely, hugely expensive and hugely impactful project that has been pushed through by the government with no kind of democratic deciding around it. The people that it's affecting, the people that it's supposedly going to be for haven't had any say in it. Um, And it's being pushed through um, using some very corrupt and often very violent methods both physically economically and socially um it's causing a lot of as i said already a lot of destruction to a lot of communities it's taking a huge amount of public taxes and putting it towards this infrastructure project that we don't really need um and it's causing a huge amount of other threats when it comes to destruction of our of various ecosystems and various woodlands and wildlife sites um, and obviously that in itself is, is hugely violent. I mean, you can see very easily just if you're traveling between uh, London and Birmingham, um, there's huge amounts of destruction that's being done to the landscape. It's really devastating. And then there's also the 
means by which they are maintaining this work and battling really against any resistance to it. Um, And I mean, it is in this country, it's our right. We have a right to protest. It's one of our fundamental rights, although the the government is currently trying to take that right from us. Um, And so understandably, there has been a resistance to this project, mainly based from the communities most affected by it. So it's hugely grassroots. Um, But as I said, now bringing in a huge uh, range of people that are resisting it. Um, And yeah, we are met with with real significant force and violence, unfortunately, both from the police um, who basically act as uh, private security firms because they have been paid off by HS2 um, and also uh, security teams, private security firms and the national eviction team um, who are bailiffs, basically. Um, and it is, it's, it's been very transformational, I think, for my activism, coming from doing a lot of work in large cities in central London, very much within the public eye, very much within the eye of the media, um, and having a very kind of easy time of it most of the time, um, especially being like white and middle class, not really having to worry about being brutalised. Um, I mean, in this country, of course, there is brutality at the hands of police and security when it comes to protesting when it comes to a huge range of things but for the most part we are kind of more sheltered from that um especially as a privileged individual such as myself uh, but going on this campaign really really put things into perspective for me and it really showed me how um the form of activism that you're engaging with even just the location also upholds privilege um and allows people to be safer and the extent to which um as soon as there isn't a crowd watching as soon as it isn't within the public eye or the the media's eye um yeah authorities really really don't have much regard for people's safety for people's boundaries for people's lives even and the things that i've experienced and i've seen happen and that i know friends have experienced have have been really really shocking Mm. So for people who haven't experienced that, what you're saying can sound really, really shocking to hear the, the violence that, you, that you've been faced with. And obviously that comes with a large part of, you know, this greenwashing of, oh, we're doing great things. So what would you make of HS2 Limited's pledge of no net loss of wildlife that they proclaim to have? I mean, honestly, I'm fascinated to know how they're claiming this. Like, I'm fascinated to understand what arguments they're using to try and give any idea that that is true, because you can just you can see it. You see the net loss of habitat and you see the attempts that they make to try and replace these habitats. And it's just completely illogical that they could that what they're saying is true and it isn't just greenwashing. Um, They have so, so little regard for any life, like not even human life a lot of the time. And you just when you I think it's just like seeing the amount of times that they carelessly and neglectfully and honestly like really irresponsibly because the majority of the time they don't have ecologists on site they don't even have professional tree surgeons doing a lot of the damage they're just sweeping through our countryside and destroying ancient ancient ecosystems and replacing them by saplings that 
in the majority of cases don't even last the year because again they haven't even planted them responsibly they're not even on the ground trying to greenwash what they're doing except when they put fences around the destruction and then they put images of trees around them so if they're talking about that maybe that's what it is but otherwise i i would love to be shown what they mean when they say these things because it's just not true and it's so easy to see how not true it is yeah and thank you for sharing that and I feel like your story in particular actually being on the front lines is the epitome of what Earth Protected Communities is about something that I think is really amazing is the community that has been built there it's almost the silver lining to the uh, huge amounts of destruction that has been permitted by HS2 can you tell us a bit about the community that, you, that you've got down there? Yeah, so it's actually a really, really incredible mix of people. It's very transient. There's about six to ten camps um, most of the time. There are a few that have been pretty permanent over the past year or so, uh, a few that have kind of popped up and then kind of moving a lot. Uh, and it's a real mix of really incredible local families, local people from a real range of backgrounds um, that have been resisting this project for, I mean, a decade. Um, And then a real incredible mix of people within the sites as well, that some are living full time, others part time, some people come and go. Environmental activists, climate activists, um, whole range, working class, middle class people, um, young, old, people from all different backgrounds. Yeah, it's really it's been really fascinating, especially coming from a movement like XR, which has a real majority from a certain demographic. It's been really incredible coming into this movement and getting to understand and have experience of kind of like the range of different incentives and tactics that there are in these spaces when it comes to this work. Um, and then that has led me into uh, being involved with a whole range of other campaigns, a whole range of other movements. Um, and really learn a lot more, especially about intersectionality um, and especially about the importance of activism and physical resistance in the context of our own homes and in this country. You mentioned a bit there about um, your work with XR. So you've made this real Mm. shift um, in the past from working with XR nationally to focusing on this localised direct action with HS2. Uh, What was that process like and why did you decide to change your activism in this way? So when I was working full time for XR, which I was doing so for about nine months, um, I was actually working more on the international level because I was running the media for XR youth. And so I was working with a lot of young people from around the world um, and then more on a national level with within XR in this country. which was really incredible. And it really, really taught me a lot, especially when it comes to media, um, which tends to be my main focus when it comes to this work. Um, And also when it kind of just in about activism in general, about the climate movement, I mean, it was really incredible to be part of the climate movement, especially the youth movement, as it kind of came about over the past three years or so um and I've met a load of uh, really incredible people that I still work with and that are friends for life really from all around the world so it's really incredible to be part of that movement um so I think it was a mix of reasons um I put a lot of energy into XR for almost two years and it had been kind of my main focus and I think that when it came about for a lot of people, 
it was kind of like the slither of hope and motivation that we really needed. Um, but I think that I believe, and I know that a lot of other people share this view, that the movement really hit its peak quite early. And then there were a lot of us within the movement that were trying really hard to make certain changes and to prioritise the work, especially when it came to kind of really decentralising the movement, really taking down power structures, really working on how we can properly outreach, how we can probably include all communities, how we can do more justice to social and racial justice as well as just climate and ecological justice. Pushing for that constantly, especially as a young person, was very, very demanding. And as I said, I just I'd been at university for a year Um, I'd only lived away from home for a year and I went straight into this world of really like full-time activism. It was just very, very demanding. And the thing that really kept me going within that was being able to physically get out on the streets and take part in activism, especially with other young people. And then when the situation with COVID started getting worse, that obviously wasn't an option. And so my work just became so limited to like being online and it just became really difficult. Um, And I initially made the decision to just to take a break. And then I got involved with the HS2 campaign and that break kind of just became permanent. Um, And with HS2, I mean, as I said, I just went out there because I'd seen a lot about it. I'd seen a lot of friends going out there and me and a friend of mine were like, well, we can go and check it out. And I was just drawn to the community and to living in those environments and to the kind of work that we were doing and kind of once you've experienced that it's really really hard to prioritize or engage with anything else. Yeah and this idea of creating communities and rebuilding and imagining different ways of existing I I think personally is a really important part of how we tackle the environmental crisis because you know even though you are tackling destruction And that can come with a lot of fear and grief. It's important to have the other side of it, which is the hope, which, you know, community can bring you. Is that something that you've experienced as part of that community? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, it equally comes with just as many challenges when you're especially when you're living and working within the same groups and within the same environment. And when it's so demanding physically and emotionally when it's so challenging um, and there's so much potential for kind of difficulties but at the same time you wouldn't be able to do it if it wasn't for that community Um, and the relationships that I've created with people just in the past year I mean these are people that I can't imagine not knowing now and that I feel like family and that is just something so so powerful and you know I think it's really it's been really interesting for me having London as a base and then coming back here every few weeks or few months when I could from these spaces and just really really feeling that loss of having that community around you and being in such a kind of communal space and coming back into a city and coming back into a house where you were so kind of separated and isolated And I really, honestly, my heart breaks for anyone that doesn't have an experience of living with people and living in a way that you never just think about yourself. You never just think about yourself as an individual. You always think about your community and the people that you live with. Um, It's taught me so, so much. I honestly, 
for all the trauma and all the heartbreak that it's given me I can't I wouldn't have asked for it any other way I don't think it sounds so cliche but <laughs> it's true no that's amazing and yeah I can I can definitely see how especially with the pandemic there is this lack of community isn't there um I kind of wanted to shift gear a little bit just to talk about how um, the role of social media can be useful for both creating community and also the limits that that can have. And I know that on the one hand, you are quite active on social media as a platform in order to educate people on certain issues. And in that case, it's unmatched in its ability to you know, bring like-minded people together to create those communities, to build movements, educate and create these feelings of solidarity and hope that we talked about. Um, But then on the other hand, there is this, I feel, the sense of complacency that can be built in online activism exclusively. Um, So as someone who does engage in both, how have your thoughts developed around social media as a tool for change? Mm. It's a really interesting one, and I feel like I could talk for a whole podcast episode Mm. just on this. I have such a love and hate relationship with social media because on the one hand I so recognize that I wouldn't be where I am with the work that I'm doing if it wasn't for social media I wouldn't have had the opportunities that I've been fortunate enough to have that have allowed me to contribute to movements that have allowed me to build on my own skills and my own platform that have just brought me so much um when it comes to just my own ability to do this and my own practice as a photographer for example um I wouldn't have had any of that if it wasn't for social media and social media has been such a big part of that and I also wouldn't have been able to be a part of building these movements in the same way because I've always been very involved with the media side of things and the press side of things um and also I wouldn't have been able to kind of see the growth of these movements um and see how they've kind of been impacting people all around the world and kind of connect with all of these other groups and individuals all around the world so there are so many things that just wouldn't be the same at all if it wasn't for social media and I can't even imagine how these movements would would pan out if it wasn't for social media but on the flip side it is it is hugely damaging and I I'm so aware of the toll that it has on my mental health the toll that it has on other people's mental health the the extent to which it actually makes these movements really inaccessible a lot of the time because they can become more about people's followings and and the kind of individual impact and individual platform that people have rather than about collaboration and about group work and about um these campaigns and these movements as a whole um and yeah I've really seen how that especially for young people can cause a lot of competition a lot of challenges a lot of feelings of being left out and being isolated from certain groups and movements. Um, and there's also the the whole issue of, of being within an echo chamber and just how these platforms work technically. They're not built in order to support movements like this growing. They're very much built in order to keep groups within their bubble and give the illusion of kind of impact and reach when really you're just kind of speaking within an echo chamber and it's just kind of to people that are already engaging with it. I think that can often give a lot of false ideas around 
the reach and the impact that you are having so it's one of those things where I just like I think it just is the way it is I don't think at this point we could separate any of this work from social media um I don't think it would be the same if we did I mean it, there may be a lot more benefits but I just think it's such an integral part of it that we kind of just have to make do with it even with the challenges and just I guess make the most of the benefits that it does have yeah at least that's what I tell myself <laughs> yeah no definitely and I think particularly in isolated communities whether that's geographically or whether it's just people within your bubble don't really have the same interests, then I think it can be very useful to engage people in that sense. Sticking with this idea of the media, something that really holds back different social movements can be this idea of media cycles, which Mm. is that one day it can be big news and the next week it'll be forgotten about. As someone who works predominantly in media, is this something that you found in your activism? Oh, 100%, 100%. And it can be really, really exhausting. Um, Especially when it comes so with the HS2 campaign, we've seen it happen quite a few times. And unfortunately, often the times when we get the most engagement is when there's something really dangerous happening when a protester's life is being put at risk. Um, or when someone has been severely injured, um, which is really difficult for myself and the rest of the community because most of the time it's like good friends of ours. Um, and it's kind of, it's it's quite exhausting doing this work 24-7 and then having people only care when a friend of yours is put at risk um, and kind of be shouting about it so often. And I mean, you see that with kind of any kind of crisis. And I don't think it's any individuals fault I think it's very much how the media works that these things only get traction when it's some and it's kind of a crisis mode um but yeah it's it's challenging we have these kind of really brief crisis moments and then a reaction as a result of it um but it's really difficult to get people to continue engaging I think especially when there's so many crises happening on like a daily basis and I think especially this past year people have become really numb to crises because we've just been living in a kind of perpetual crisis um and I think actually if anything social media doesn't help with that because it's very good at prioritizing certain news and certain information and therefore silencing other things like literally just banning shadow banning people as a result and so it's really difficult yeah yeah there's actually something that you've said about this before that I really love in your response to media trends and it's that instead of reduce reuse recycle it's recognize research and rebel and I just love that because I think it is so important it's almost got this this hope to it that you know we can work through it if we educate ourselves and then take action on these issues Mm. yeah when you start to connect the dots between all these systems of oppression and all these destructive and exploitative institutions and the resulting experiences and oppressions that people experience um, and how they're all connected, it can be quite overwhelming because it kind of suddenly feels like we're going up against the whole world and it feels like any action that we take in the, in in resistance to these destructive systems um, is really futile and that 
when you're kind of faced with someone, especially if you're an individual that um, is impacted by those intersections, whether that's class or race or gender or or whatever, um, it can be quite overwhelming because it does feel like you're you're going up against this this huge monster and who has a chance at uh, succeeding against that um but I think it can also be quite liberating because it, it really gives you an understanding of of shared resistance and the connections between different struggles um and how even though that potentially means that there's so much more to fight against it always me- also means that there's so much more to fight with and for um and I think that especially within the left one of our biggest failures is not doing the work to understand intersectionality and to prioritize um work around intersectionality and around uh platforming and advocating and supporting those that are most impacted by their intersecting identities and the various forms of oppression and discrimination that they face as a result of that. Um, and I think the lack of that work really shows in a lot of movements. Movements, And that was really clear in XR for a long time. And I know that there's a lot of people that have been trying to do that work, but it is there is a long way to go, um, which can be really, really overwhelming. And a lot of the work that is required is self-work and um, educating ourselves on how these intersections impact us as individuals. Um, but like I've seen those impacts and those moments when that work is prioritised and it's incredible. There's nothing like it when you can bring together different groups from different backgrounds and different struggles and unite them under a common cause it's like the most most liberating thing yeah and I suppose uh, that recognition that this is not something that we can just pick up and put down it's something that is this lived experience for so many people and uh, with its combined yet differentiated um mm-hmm. effects it does affect everyone um yeah. but we do need to recognize also how it affects some people more than others and then you know we need leadership from these communities but I think that's a really important part of how we integrate this work into all of our lives and how we kind of get past that that view of seeing activism as like a career choice or like a hobby or something that you do as 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 like work rather than something that we're all engaging with and something that should be part of every aspect of our lives on every level of our lives um and I think we have a real separation from that and that's part of the reason why people's mental health in these spaces can be so bad because we really don't know how to navigate it in a way that's kind of integrated and in accordance with our well-being and the rest of our lives. No, absolutely. So a big part of your recent activist work has been focused around uh, Kill the Bill protests. Could you just tell us what this is why it's important and how people could get involved. Yes, so Kill the Bill is a campaign that has come out in response to the policing uh, crimes, courts and sentencing bill, which is a bill that the government is currently trying to push through, which basically just increases policing powers in a huge 
a range of different areas, um, causes a lot of threat to many already marginalised groups and completely uh, inhibits our right to protest and basically is just going to cause a huge threat to our democracy um, and dissent in this country. So Kill the Bill, there's, there is a really broad campaign and it's got a lot of different groups and movements involved. Kill the Bill has kind of come out as a coalition of a lot of those groups. There's a national action last weekend, which looked really incredible. And there are more, I think the next one is the 29th of May, but I might get that wrong. But um, yeah, I mean, it can be found on social media again. And there's so many local groups popping up now as well. So pretty much wherever you are in the country, you should be able to get access to a local Kill the Bill and get involved if you so wish. (laughs) Yeah. Something that's, I think, uh, characteristic of your activism is just how many scales it transcends you know so you've got kill the bill which is national you've got hs2 which is both a national project but also very localized in the communities and then you've you've done work um internationally with xr as well so for you is, is it important to work at these different scales of activism i think it's been really incredible for me and i think it has taught me so much about activism in general and about all sorts of different facets of this work um and I think especially what's been really important especially as a young person working within the kind of global youth movement doing work that was very much more localized and more based in kind of my more immediate and local communities was really really grounding and also put into perspective a lot of the things that you kind of engage with and learn about within the wider movement but that can often become quite detached And I think for me, like learning how to work within a community, learning what it means to defend your own home and resist destruction and oppression and all of these things within your own context, I think is really, really important for understanding how to do that work on a larger scale, how to engage with solidarity along those lines. Because I think a lot of the time we forget that a lot of these issues also occur in the global north in the UK I think that we lose sight of that and I think that's a real disfavor to our work and to our ability to engage with solidarity and to engage with other resistances around the world because if we can't connect to it on our own personal level then we don't really have a hope of being able to connect to it on on a global scale with things that are so much harder to conceive of you know yeah absolutely and I think when people think of frontline activism, they do, as you say, often think about things that are happening halfway across the world, whether that's the destruction of the rainforests, the mangroves, the coral reefs. And yet there are things happening right on our doorstep, as you say, and people can get involved. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it is crazy just how we've created this narrative in our mind. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I've got a question which I'll be asking all the guests, which is, as building community is crucial to realising sustainable futures, please can you just share with us a couple of people or groups who are working to create a better world and deserve to have their work highlighted? That's a good question. Um, So someone who I always shout out is Domi, Dominique who I've known for a couple of years now through XR Youth, but she does really, really incredible work within the youth movement in this country and internationally. Um, And it's been 
really exciting actually the past year especially seeing everything that she's been working on and that she's been achieving that's been really incredible um and another one is uh guardians of the forest so that's a collective of indigenous leaders and groups from south america um and i've been really lucky to kind of have contact with various people that are working within that group and with that group and have contact with them a few times over the past year and done various bits of work with them and hopefully continuing to do so and it's I think especially doing that alongside the work that I've been doing here kind of to as guardians of our own forests it's been like really really incredible to connect with groups doing so on the other side of the world as well. Thank you Tao it's been really wonderful to speak to you and yeah thank you again for sharing all that you have yeah, no worries. Um, where can people find you and hear more about your work? So I am on Instagram. That's kind of usually my main platform. Um, my handle is Tal Taking Picks. Um, I'm also on Twitter under the same handle, but I don't really like Twitter, so I don't use it very often. Um, and I'm currently in the process of actually setting up a Facebook page where I'll also be sharing my work. But yeah, towel taking pics or fine, just type in my name online and I'll come up probably. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Please check out Earth Protect Communities at earthprotectcommunities.net and all our social media platforms under Earth Protect Communities as well. If you've enjoyed listening, why not consider giving us a five star review? It really helps us to share this podcast with more people. Our logo was designed by Gemma Tricky at Gemma Tricky Studio. A special thank you to Anita Van Rossum and Joe Kimber for their guidance. You can find links to everything that we've mentioned in the show notes.